from ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah. Welcome to the LabMind podcast, where we discuss the future of diagnostic laboratory testing. I'm Dr. Brian Jackson. So today is Wednesday, August 19th, 2020. We're recording two interviews today with family physicians who have been medical directors of ARUP's Family Health Clinic. The other interview that I'd encourage you to listen to if you haven't already was with Dr. Peter Weir, a former medical director of the clinic, and we talked about the unique structure and really the medical home aspect of the ARUP clinic that is pretty unique. So listen to that if you haven't already. But right now we have the current medical director of the ARUP Family Health Clinic, Dr. Catherine Gibson, and we're going to focus on COVID issues during our conversation today. So Dr. Gibson is a board-certified family medicine physician who joined the AREP Family Health Clinic in 2012, previously worked at the University of Utah Community Clinics. She received her undergraduate degree from Rice and a master's degree in exercise physiology from University of Texas at Austin, medical school and residency training here at the University of Utah. So that's the academic background. I think the most relevant thing I can say is that she is widely acknowledged here at AREP as an exceptional diagnostician and clinician. And there's no one that I talk to who's seen her who doesn't say that she's the biggest reason why they want to stay at AREP forever because no one ever wants to have to find a new doctor after being taken care of by Dr. Gibson. Sorry to embarrass you, but that's your reputation and it's well earned. Catherine Gibson, welcome to LabMind. Thank you so much. It is so nice to pull back a little bit from the chaos of uh, daily clinical practice and, and be able to sit and talk about it for a little bit. So as we discussed, we want to talk really about two issues. The first is how the clinic has had to adapt in the area of COVID for just all of the clinical care that you provide. And then the second one that we'll get into a little bit after is the role of keeping AREP infection-free and, and COVID-free in terms of the, the workplace safety and infection control side of it. Before we get into that, we should probably just ask you to describe the clinic in terms of how many people are there involved in running the clinic, what are some of the different roles involved, and then how many people are you taking care of, so in terms of the patient population. So health and wellness at ARUP is comprised of not only a family health clinic, which nestled within that serves both occupational health needs, as well as uh, serving the primary care needs of our employees and their family members. We also have an integrated wellness center and wellness staff as well as an in-house lab, which is unique because ARUP is a lab, but we still do the patient facing draws and, and point of care processing for our employees as well. So as far as staffing, we have eight providers now. I believe we have three physicians, an internal medicine physician, two family medicine physicians. We have six advanced practice providers. Then we have two clinical pharmacists. We have four nurses, a fantastic care coordinator. We've got amazing medical assistants and three lab staff. It seems like a, a big group. And our, our wellness staff, which includes, they're all master's degree trained wellness coaches, including two registered dietitians. So it seems like a very multidisciplinary group of folks taking care of our employees and their family members. So currently, I think we have around 41, 4,200 employees. I know 53 folks joined ARUP just this week. The employee numbers keep increasing. And with every employee, we're fortunate to be able to take care of family members as well. So quite a number of um, folks when you include not only the employees, but also their family members. 
So really, you're doing serious population health management. You've got a good-sized population of 15,000-plus people and then the multidisciplinary group. Do you describe this as a medical home when you talk to people? Absolutely. I can't imagine a more unique structure where we're able to serve the employee and the family member, but also have quite a bit of awareness of the health plan and the benefits available to the population, as well as their working environment. How often do you have such a unique window into what people spend the majority of their lives doing when you're able to see not only their work environments, but also have relationships with their family members? I think that provides quite a well-rounded picture of someone's well-being. That's sort of the baseline that you've been working with and developing and growing for the past few years. And then March came along in COVID. So what what was March like for you with respect to medically directing this clinic? Well, I'll start actually a little before March, because fortunately, as part of an academic medical center, that being the University of Utah, as well as ARUP Laboratories, There are so many smart and forward-thinking folks here. And so ARUP Laboratories began their COVID task force in early February. So as a group of multi-departmental individuals representing aspects of ARUP, the leadership said, this is something potentially big on the horizon and we need to prepare for this. And that was critical because not only in health and wellness, but also the departments across ARUP were able to set contingency plans for staffing. We're able to think about acquiring personal protective equipment or PPE. We're able to think about how employees would report illness, you know, just work through these processes. So we were fortunate that when March did come, we had not only a framework on which to build, but Utah also didn't experience kind of the initial crunch that the East Coast did. So To speak to how suddenly this came on, I had had a trip planned with my husband to Scandinavia. And coming into March, we were constantly evaluating, should we go? Should we not go? And in late February, there were only a few, at that time, known cases in the U.S., There were no cases where we were going in Scandinavia, so we made what we thought was a great educated and data-informed decision to go to Scandinavia the very, very beginning parts of March. And the week of March 9th came, and it seemed like the situation turned on a dime. So we were actually in eastern Finland March 10th, and I think March 11th was the day that Trump announced that on the 13th, airports would be closing to incoming flights. And so we quickly got back to Helsinki and then Oslo and then the Netherlands and Paris and and finally back to Salt Lake City. And of course, during that time, having been out of the country, my husband and I had to quarantine for 14 days because that was the time where folks coming into the U.S. needed a 14-day quarantine. So it was interesting being back in the mix with the team, but having worked from home in a time where as a clinician working from home was almost unheard of. So that was early March (laughs) for me. So having said that, our team is so fantastic and knowing that we had planned for this and knowing that the whole staff was anticipating this, I was so fortunate to come back and the team was already having the gears moving at a high speed. 
the clinic quickly, and we had, we had this planned out earlier, we quickly transitioned to three divisions within the clinic. We had an occupational health team, we had a virtual care team, and then we had an in-person clinic team. And the in-person care was really limited at the time by the available personal protective equipment. And so fortunately, we were able to quickly transition to kind of two modes of patient care, both virtual and, and in-person as we take care of a whole population, as we mentioned, we don't have the luxury of just not seeing patients or not addressing their healthcare needs. So we had to figure out quickly how to do that in a safe manner, not only for our employees and their family members, but also for our staff. And that was quite difficult to anticipate because we didn't know the characteristics of the virus at the time. We didn't know how effective the personal protective equipment that we had would be. We didn't know if touch transmission of this virus was a major factor, if it was really respiratory borne. There were a lot of unknowns at that time. The other fortunate piece we had was we already had telemedicine as a component of the clinic. In fact, we have in the clinic, there were a number of telemedicine suites. That sounds a little exotic. They're actually just closet-sized rooms where with a computer and a webcam. But we were already set up for telemedicine. And so we were able to quickly transition to doing more of that. Our protocols were already established. Interestingly, for the past five years as a clinic, we've really tried to push telehealth, likely because when we serve ARUP's population, it's very different than serving a physically located community. ARUP has employees all and down the Wasatch Front, which is the Salt Lake City area, but that ranges across 60, 90 miles. And so for us to take care of family members, let's say, who live 50 miles away, telehealth seemed to me to be a great option. We had a lot of difficulty getting traction, not only from patients, but also from our clinicians. It seemed that the way it had always been done had, looking back, a very powerful hole on transitions of care. And so one true silver lining of COVID for us was that the transition, not from a protocol standpoint, but from a mindset evolved quickly, not only on the patient side, but also on the clinician side. And that was the push that we had needed for years to progress. And in a sense, it was like, oh, why did this take so long? Because clinicians were saying, oh, well, that's efficient. Oh, I can do good medicine this way. I, I didn't realize I could do that. And patients, the same way. It was like, oh, I can still get care that way. And one part of me is just kind of hitting my forehead saying, why did this take so long? But on the other hand, I think the transition to telehealth is here to stay. And it's not meant for all use cases, but for so many things, it will help advance how healthcare is delivered in a efficient and patient-centered, effective way. I love how you describe that. Clearly, telehealth is one of the big medical news stories. For most of the country, the core of the story is that it's being paid for by the insurance companies, and that was the thing. But for you, the clinic has never had to worry about third-party reimbursement for this. You just take care of the patient. So it's fascinating to me that you're describing a mindset adjustment that had to happen to really embrace this. Absolutely. And that's what I didn't understand before is that, you know, given our unique 
situation in which our employees and family members do not have to pay a cost for their care because our staff is so ingrained in the value of doing the right thing for the patient because we don't have constructs such as reimbursement models. It didn't really add up to me why the efficiency of telehealth whether it's done over phone or over video or or even asynchronously over secured email. I didn't understand why it wasn't catching on. And there's just a lot of inertia in the system. <laughs> I think that is exactly the right word. There is a lot of inertia in the system. And it was hard looking forward to see in the same way, looking back, what that inertial force actually was. It's going to be a hard question to answer to put a number on it. But if you had to estimate the proportion of clinical interaction that was quote unquote telehealth prior to March versus today, what would be your gut feel? I actually, those numbers we've looked at more recently. So before COVID, we were doing about 15 to 20%. Which is actually fantastic. It's actually quite a bit. And I think the reimbursement constraints that we don't have allowed us to do even that much up to COVID. But now we're doing 60 to 70% of our interactions in a telehealth manner. Okay, so that's the telehealth. And like you pointed out, telehealth works for a lot of things, but there are some things that it doesn't work as well for where, where you really need to you know, physically examine the patient or whatever. For the care that still has to take place on site and individuals coming in to be cared for, what are some of the changes that you had to put into place to keep everyone safe? I think the physical changes are the most robust. In other words, space in any facility is costly. And so prior to COVID, the thought was communal spaces, ability to interact with others, um, making areas comfortable was kind of the direction that health clinics were going. In fact, some of the clinics that were built right before COVID have lounge areas where you can come in and prior to your appointment can log on to the Wi-Fi, you know, read a book, get a coffee. Now that's completely changed. And so there is a far more protocolized process of people need to be checked in as far as their current health status. We need to make sure to keep distancing between patient families. We now have a one-way path through the clinic so that individuals don't backtrack or cross paths um, more often than needed with others in that space. We schedule far more interactions for example, previously our lab services were done on a walk-in basis because labs are often that way. You, you need them when you need them. And, and now due to the sheer nature of having to clean so frequently everything that a patient or an individual touches, we've even had to schedule lab appointments and, and lab visits now. For me, space and the care and maintenance of that space and the spacing between individuals within that physical environment has been the biggest change for us. Let's transition and talk about the role of the clinic in keeping all of the rest of the ARP operations going. So I, I want to set this up a little bit for the viewers who may not be as familiar with ARP. As Dr. Gibson pointed out, we've got you know over 4,000 employees right now. I think about two-thirds of the workforce actually handle specimens and testing instruments and things like that. And so we've got about a third of the workforce that have been able to work from home who are more office jobs like me, but about two thirds, which is I think between two and 3,000 people that have to come to work every day, mostly in one 
great big building complex. This is a critical medical function. We're supporting patient care. AREP cannot afford to have an outbreak happen and, and get shut down. I mean, that would be an absolute medical catastrophe. So given that, given the high stakes there, everyone was looking to you, I think, in terms of AREP management to say, okay, how are we going to keep our workforce safe? So what was the answer? Professionally, this has been a really uncomfortable time, but a time in which I've grown so much because as healthcare professionals, we've been taught to be evidence-based, to be guideline-driven. And this was a circumstance in which there wasn't evidence or guidelines. And the discomfort that surrounded making decisions for our population, and I, I say that with terms of care, because we don't just have patients, we have coworkers, we have colleagues. These aren't patients, they're the people we work with and care about. So there's there's an added level of concern for the individuals we care for. Thus, making decisions about safety protocols without the security of guidelines and evidence to which we are so accustomed took a lot of getting used to or soul searching. And again, fortunately, looking to others, looking to teams of people, the amazing minds here at AREP Laboratories, the support from the University of Utah, uh, coming together with infectious disease specialists and saying, this is what I'm thinking. Do, do you have any thoughts? So how, how did we approach this? We initially started and said, it's critical that we identify ill employees right off the bat. So we need a robust reporting system that is at the same time feel safe to the employees in terms of privacy. And we need leave policies that aren't punitive such that employees are not fearful for their jobs or their positions when they're asked to be tested or quarantined for a period of time. So this involved obviously the corporate safety department, the human resources, the operations team, the family health clinic. Let me just interrupt you here and, and contrast this with two other sort of settings. So there were some news stories early on of meatpacking plants in the Midwest where employees knew that they were sick, that you know had cough, headache, the whole deal, fever, but felt pressured to come into work because they were at fear for their job, fear of getting in trouble if they, because there really wasn't a culture of taking sick leave and it led to outbreaks and, and these places getting shut down. And it was just really a catastrophe for everyone. The other question I want to ask you is, I sense that there's historically a culture in medicine, in medical training, also in the practice of medicine of sort of toughing it out and not well, let me just be blunt, of doctors coming to work sick because the culture says you tough it out and you don't want to put more burden on your coworkers. In, in AREP, we're all in healthcare, so we're all somewhat a part of that culture. So was that a challenge? Yes and no. Our culture exists before COVID that AREP values health. They wouldn't have a no-cost health and wellness offerings here if they didn't value health. Prior to all this, mental health is talked about continuously, the need to move and be physically active, the need to sleep and recover. I mean, all of these pieces are woven through the communications that AREP put out, you know, long before COVID. And so there was a culture of valuing health to begin with. Now, having said that, there is also a culture of 
come to work. And I think that's not, you know, just AREP. It's the country in general. It's, you know, if you're sick, come to work and tough it out. The change here was that COVID revealed how interconnected we all are. And that if any department at ARUP goes down, the rest of ARUP can't function. And so it turns the dynamic on its head and says, if you don't protect yourself and your colleagues, none of us can perform our job. So the relatively short inconvenience of being out and the the delay in immediate productivity is vastly improved over the long run. One has to wonder if the United States as a whole had taken this approach and had this culture and thought, you know, the, the key to continuing to thrive as a society is keeping the infections away, maybe we'd be in a lot better shape today. Completely agreed. I think looking long-term, anticipating the future was vital in this circumstance. And similar to most European countries, they were able to see the future and say, we need to have an aggressive approach to managing this virus early on. They're in a much different situation right now than we are in the U.S. So I want to pick up on another topic that you mentioned. I think it's just really interesting which is the role of the clinic in contact tracing. I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with some of the national dialogue on public health agencies. And in theory, contact tracing should help get people isolated when they're potentially infectious and suppress the transmission. But the big problem is getting all of that done fast enough. And when you have to wait for a positive test result to go to a state health department and then contact tracer have a long list of people that they need to try to get in touch with each day, the inefficiencies of that just slow it down. Here in this setting, what what have you been able to do by basically insourcing contact tracing and not waiting for the public health agencies to take care of it? Yeah, this is an incredibly unique and and beneficial situation. So ARUP is one of the laboratories running the COVID testing. And so the integration of the family health clinic with our employees is that there is an established culture of employees contacting the clinic relative to health concerns, knowing that their information from personal health information standpoint is protected and will not cross that line between the clinic and the employer. So your supervisor is not going to get a phone call saying that so-and-so showed up in the clinic. Exactly. And that's critical. And I think that Peter Weir, whom you, you spoke about earlier, that was a vital component of the success of the health and wellness at ARUP because If you don't have that trust to begin with, you don't have anything. So getting back to the contact tracing, we have a process where employees were used to contacting the clinic for health concerns. In this case, that quickly transitioned to contacting the clinic for any symptoms or exposures they had. Clinic providers are then able to immediately order the COVID testing as necessary and when necessary. And employees were often able to go that same day to a partner facility, a University of Utah testing site to have the sample collected. In turn, ARUP was able to run those tests. And as a provider, like any other provider in the university system, we would get those results very quickly. And and ARUP has had phenomenal turnaround times. As soon as ARUP reports that result, I am aware of the results through the electronic medical record. So time is of the essence. And in this case, through each step, we have time advantages. So the employee calls, we get them tested. As soon as we get the results, 
I'd say within, you know, 10 minutes, we're able to contact the employee, discuss how they're feeling and ask them about their contact tracing. I would say 80% of the contact tracing can be done directly through the employee. They know who they've been around. They know who their work colleagues are. They know who they've eaten lunch with. And then we're right away able to contact those colleagues because they're they're all here at the facility and have them uh, tested or, or managed appropriately. So the turnaround is so much faster than a health department would be able to do just in terms of transmitting the the test results and then trying to get a hold of the employee and then trying to understand the the work dynamics and the contacts. A quick interruption here for listeners. You're going to hear a little bit different sound quality on Dr. Gibson because we were having some microphone issues. So we had to switch to a different microphone. So she's going to sound slightly different from here on out. I want to go back to another point that you made early on, and you talked about the challenge of trying to do evidence-based medicine with a disease for which there's no evidence out there and the discomfort with that. And I think this has really been one of the major stories nationally with creating distrust of experts. For example, when the World Health Organization discouraged use of masks and then later turned around and said, no, this is a good idea. I think those kinds of things created distrust, even though everyone is doing their best to keep up on best available evidence and everything else. So I guess the question I want to ask you is, can you think of any examples where as new evidence has come out or the understanding of this disease and its transmission has changed, where you've had to either reverse something or change the advice that you're given? And how have you messaged that? And how have you been able to sort of do that in a way that retained trust, didn't make all the health experts look like idiots because why didn't we know it in the first place? Right. The example that comes to mind is early on, return to work criteria for us as a laboratory organization involved previously positive individual retesting. So after 14 days, the individual would go back, have another COVID test done. If it was negative, they'd be able to return to work. And as information about the virus evolved, we learned that positive individuals shed virus that's unable to infect others for days to weeks to sometimes months after infection. And so I'd say maybe the eighth or 10th employee that we had that was positive and we were in early April at this time, they had recovered, gotten better. They went for their return to work COVID test and it was still positive. And we thought, what do we do now? And looking at data, there was data starting to come out about the duration of viral shedding. But long before the CDC started to discourage return to work testing, given our experience, we decided not to require return to work COVID testing and negative COVID tests. And this was met with tremendous trepidation from supervisors and employees because the sense of having a coworker come back with a positive COVID test seemed wrong. And I think that speaks to how powerful a laboratory result is. And in this case, what it showed was that the individual was shedding inactive viral particles at the time. But we had to get over that hurdle of, no, this person is not still infectious while that evidence was evolving. Now, having said all that, we looked at these cases, case by case, very carefully, took a very conservative approach 
to bringing people back to work. But I think that was one of those decisions where our initial guidance said one thing and we evolved our knowledge and thus changed the guidance and had to continually communicate to supervisors, to human resources, to employees that know the criteria no longer include a repeat test to come back to work. And I love that as part of that, you point out the cultural power of a laboratory result. Yes. Lab tests just seem so objective and so independent and such a source of truth that it can be hard to think of them as as simply one more imperfect piece of evidence. Absolutely. When I went to medical school, they they never talked about the sensitivities and specificities and and how laboratory tests were run. And and I think that has since become part of the curriculum because I think clinicians still look at laboratory testing as somewhat of a sense of truth and, and have a hard time questioning a potential result in context of the clinical picture. I think even more so patients look at results as the source of truth. And so as a variety of tests with a variety of qualities came to the market, I think the public was faced with that confusion, concern about, can I trust this test? Does the test result speak the truth? Or are there factors about how tests are developed and validated that needs to be considered? We're seeing that right now with these questions about whether we should be doing more antigen testing. In a way, I think maybe we've been a little bit spoiled with the pretty good sensitivity and the excellent specificity of the PCR test. But the speed of getting PCR tests done and the throughput of laboratories is such that people are starting to talk about, well, let's do rapid antigen tests. But that requires a different mindset. It requires that you adapt to the fact that this less expensive test is slightly less accurate, and you've got to compensate for that. And I think that's hard for people. Absolutely. We've been talking about this really unique model of the AREP Family Health Clinic and its ability to play an infection control and occupational health role in this large workplace, and acknowledging that the, the overall model is pretty unique. But, but I'm wondering if there are any lessons that you've learned over the past six months that would be applicable in other employment settings where they may not have a clinic quite like yours, but well, there are probably not any owners of meatpacking plants listening to this podcast, but if there were, or, or maybe a, you know, a superintendent of a school district thinking about keeping their teachers safe, because that's a really hot issue this week as schools are starting to go back, or other workplace settings. Are there any sort of lessons that you've learned that you'd want to impart to people in employment settings? With any and all communities, clear, consistent, and constant communication is always a cornerstone of process change especially in COVID, processes are completely changing. We have very little foundation for what we're experiencing right now. And so education specific to the particular workplace is critical. There's so much information out there, but yet individuals want to know what is expected of me in the workplace. What does my employer expect? What are the expectations from my supervisor? And how does all of this function at my workplace? So clear communication, constant communication of expectations, especially when they change. I think the availability of tools for employees to manage their questions and concerns and an easy process to report. So if employees are unable or unclear how to report symptoms and or an exposure, the process of keeping your workplace safe is going to break down. Furthermore, if employees are concerned about 
punitive measures taken, if they do report symptoms and or an exposure, the process will break down. And so the entirety of the organization has to be mindful that if you don't have clear expectations, an easy-to-follow process, and a non-punitive staffing contingency. Those are kind of foundational to keep that workplace safe. You're pointing out a lot of factors that really, I think AREP had the advantage of having a lot of that in place prior to COVID. We, you know, we didn't mention sick leave policies, but obviously that's another one that goes along with making it non-punitive to call in sick. Yes, absolutely. Okay, final question here. Hopefully, we're trying to be optimistic here. Hopefully, a year from now, we'll have this behind us. If not a year from now, then two years from now. But hopefully, one of these vaccines or multiple of these vaccines are going to work, and we'll eventually get beyond this and get back to some sort of non-pandemic state. Are there things that you have learned you know, over the past six months that will persist beyond COVID, whether it's telehealth, whether it's other things? Are there changes that you expect will continue beyond the COVID era as a result of what we've learned along here? I think the telehealth is key one for me, the ability to move forward and provide patient-centered care in a unique delivery model needs to hang around and needs to evolve. I think that's key going forward. I'm excited about that. I think there is tremendous potential and that's really exciting, not only for our practice here at ARUP, but for primary care and healthcare across the country. I think personally, challenges bring great opportunity to grow. And through this, I've learned to be more uncomfortable with or be okay with with discomfort, to be okay about uncertainty, to appreciate the interconnectedness of our systems, whether that's you know within the department you work in or within the company you work in or within your local and even national and even world. All of our actions impact each other and we have to be patient and careful and caring for ourselves and to extend that to our colleagues and then to be mindful about the structure and the organization in, w- in which we live because our actions affect others and that's powerful. And we can use that for good and for growth. So Dr. Catherine Gibson, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Lots and lots of thought-provoking things that you've brought out and stuff that I think is going to be new to a lot of people listening to this. I hope so. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Lab Mind podcast sponsored by ARUP Laboratories. ARUP is a not-for-profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. You can find more LabMind podcasts at arup.utah.edu or subscribe to LabMind using iTunes or your favorite podcast app.